0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Rambling with Ryu, I'm Bean,
1: and I'm Nancy,
0: And today we're going to be talking about all things sexuality and disability. Our guest today is Margaret Conquest, who has 29 years of lived experience with a C spine spinal cord injury. She is very well versed in all things sexuality, pleasure, and intimacy. And the way she delivers the information is very understandable and relatable. And she has just been a wealth of knowledge for me personally and for literally anybody that I introduce Margaret to. And so Margaret, thank you for being here. You are such an inspiration and you have like so much knowledge to share. So I'm really happy to have you on our podcast.
1: Well, thank you for having me. And that makes me feel super nervous because while I, I like to say I'm passionate about all things sex, I don't know everything, but I'm willing to dive deep and look for whatever I don't have some sort of inkling on.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that's what makes a good expert is the... Willingness to admit that you don't know everything, because I don't think anybody can ever know everything about anything. And so just being able to admit that shows that you're constantly willing to grow. And that's a great quality to have. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'll let you just introduce yourself a bit and go into your story, however deep you like to go.
1: So I was injured in 1991, just about 30 years ago. And at that time, I was in grade 11. I was Right in the middle of my first true love, my first really serious relationship. So having a C6, C7 injury, of course, at 16, I had my whole life planned out. I knew which direction I was headed, right? Mm -hmm. Like every 16-year-old does. (laughs) So that just threw a a big roadblock in the way. And beyond my plans being changed, I really didn't have... As much knowledge as I thought I did. For sure, looking back, not. Every kid has certain degrees of opportunity for exploration sexually. And I was raised in a Catholic family, very conservative family. And it was very, you know, that was naughty. It was quite naughty to be doing anything with somebody outside of marriage. And especially at 16, I wasn't headed anywhere near marriage. So it was, well, but I guess you're not having sex. So there's, never mind not having sex, there was no discussion of pleasure. And so everything they did was at parties and in cars or dark basements. Even though I had just dived into my first true love, first relationship that was serious, I'd had a whole bunch of fun in the dark and in cars and in basements with a lot of boys. And there was a lot of knowing that something felt good, but not knowing certainly not knowing my anatomy mm-hmm. and not knowing the anatomy of my pleasure and not, not even knowing a language or an ability to discuss with someone, you know, faster, slower, softer. Mm-hmm. If that feels good, stop doing that. It was just a lot of groping in the dark. Despite that though, and maybe it's because I it was a conservative Catholic upbringing, I've always had a lot of Curiosity sexually. Mm-hmm. So I've always been keenly interested in stuff. My grandpa lived on the same property as us. We were on a farm. He had Playboys everywhere in his basement and in the barn. And so some of that, like some of my early formative, sort of like, oh, this is what a lady looks like naked, was from Playboy, which actually isn't the worst thing because Playboy yeah. in the realm of you know pictorial porn is pretty deferential to the female form and respectful of the female body. So it wasn't, nothing nasty was going on, but that's probably not the first place I should have had an opportunity to learn about sex. So that's kind of my beginning experience. Okay.
0: Can we just go back a bit? uh, Do you mind sharing how you sustained your spinal cord injury?
1: Yeah. So I was injured in phys ed class. We were doing gymnastics as part of the curriculum and we didn't have any kind of instructor or subject matter expert come in the classroom. The direction was be creative. The better the routine that you put together for marks, the better the mark you will get. And so we were given free reign with all of the equipment in the the equipment room. Mm -hmm. So we set up a high jump crash mat and a pommel horse. And a springboard, and had a long run up, and I did a. I actually it was is a standing backflip from box horse, and I under rotated and compressed my C six and seven, and yeah, that was that. Wow. Yes. So you spoke about
0: dating this guy. Were you dating him before your injury or after your injury?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we met. Let me do the math here. We were in band together. We played sports together. And when we started dating in December, I was injured in April. So that was like a fast burn romance. It was really hot. We were both super horny because we weren't having sex because he was still deciding whether or not he was going to be a priest. So we met before I was injured and we stayed together for a brief period of time afterwards. But you know, we were both super young, and I think he was really freaked out about his own, not freaked out, but well, fun the future, mm-hmm. as you kind of should be when you're 18, 19, and I was 16. Yeah. So yeah, we were young, and I was very, very concerned about being rejected. So I did rejecting kind of early on. I shut it down and broke up with him, and then I was single for, for the most part for another three, two, three years. Okay, so we're going to get into more
0: of your story a little bit later, but Mm -hmm. let's start from the beginning about sexuality and disability. I mean, this is a huge topic, and we're not going to be able to cover everything in one episode. So in this episode, we're going to just kind of start from the beginning, and we'll see how far we get to, (laughs) and then uh, we're definitely going to have you back for a few more episodes because there's just so much to cover, and I'm sure we're going to get some interesting questions about this too.
1: I was going to say that's kind of where we can go from here is see what people are interested in, what they don't hear. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it's probably important for me to recognize my own natural bias that I'm a woman and I'm interested in my anatomy and my mm-hmm. physiology, but also it doesn't mean I'm not interested, but I'm just naturally more curious about my own function and pleasure. So with regards to that, when it comes to spinal injury or uh, neurologically based, disability mm-hmm. for women when it comes to the very basics in plumbing your reproduction really isn't changed a lot because of the the shock of injury or a new newly exacerbated condition your ovulation will often stop mm-hmm. and it can take 6 months a year so I've known a couple of women whose ovulation has not returned until after a couple of years oh wow but that's not uncommon it's very very normal And so, yeah, when it comes to the pleasure part of it, for women generally, the clitoris is kind of the the holy grail of pleasure.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And it's literally as well as figuratively shrouded. So you have the labia minora, labia majora, and at the top of both of those structures, the internal and the external lips of the vulva, is the clitoris. And it is often, and in different ways and variations for women, hidden and a little difficult to find sometimes and a little difficult to figure out what feels good, how it feels good. And so when you have a spinal injury and your, your sensation is altered as well as your function, Mm -hmm. just finding that again and finding uh, how that functions is already going to be a bit of a challenge. If you didn't know your anatomy prior to injury, Mm -hmm. and know what felt good and what your triggers were, for uh, pleasure and orgasm. So then the the other thing to be mindful of is we have two kinds of sexual response, reflexogenic and psychogenic, Mm -hmm. and psychogenic being that which starts in the brain, the thing that makes you horny, which then translates into increased blood flow to the genitals, increased blood flow to your face, your neck, your chest, the rest of your body,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and reflexogenic, which is just based on touch. So being touched and being turned on just by touch. And for men and women that change throughout the lifespan, so as we become older, we are much more touch-based than thought-based, but certainly after a neurological injury also. It is often a more sure or certain way of becoming aroused is through touch as opposed to just through thought. However, I know that in some of our group discussions with the, the wheelie girls, mm-hmm. there's lots of women in that group who absolutely rely on psychogenic arousal mm-hmm. to sort of complete the pathway for them, mm-hmm. especially if they have altered sensation. They can see, and as one of the women put it, fill in the blanks for the things they can't feel, Yeah, which is kind of interesting to, to hear. Now, I have an incomplete injury. Mm -hmm. And my injury, it's interesting in that I have some sensation and some function intact. But even then, I still really struggle to achieve orgasm. Mm -hmm. It's somewhat elusive. And I do really have to rely on a lot of work on both the the psychogenic end as well as the reflexogenic end, Mm -hmm. meaning lots and lots of touch, meaning lots and lots of, I don't know how to describe it. It's like the date has to last all day or all evening. For me to really be in the mood. Yeah. Mentally.
0: I feel like a lot of people with spinal cord injuries have said that, that it does take a lot more mental effort. And like, I've talked to a few guys who have spinal cord injuries and they said that even though they have no sensation, that they use their imagination a lot to get aroused. And even if they take like pills and stuff to get aroused, they still need that imagination part to really feel connected.
1: Yeah. And you know, years ago, The sexual response cycle only included excitement, plateau, orgasm, and resolution. Mm -hmm. And in the 60s and 70s, desire was added. And I think that we don't pay enough homage to desire and libido Mm -hmm. in terms of how that really impacts sexual function. And not just from a hormone-based sort of uh, reasoning, but... Mm -hmm. What's going on in your life? Like you talk to people who have a a new injury, Mm -hmm. people who've got an ongoing uh, condition to manage, there's fatigue, there's dealing with your body image, there's dealing with the people in your life. Mm -hmm. And when you're first injured or first dealing with something that's new to you, you're just keeping your head above water. Yeah. So it makes all the sense in the world that someone doesn't have any desire Mm -hmm. or just says, oh, sex, that's over.
0: Well, because I mean, I think that's part of the stigma, right? Like even when I was paralyzed, one of the first thoughts I had was who's going to date a girl in a wheelchair? Yeah. And like you just automatically seem like you're undateable. You're definitely don't feel sexy. And then, yeah, the body image stuff, uh, having to have a catheter and then losing bowel control and all of these things really play a part in your self-esteem. And then you think about dating with all of these things and you're just like, no, <laughs> like I don't want to.
1: Well, and you don't get any chance to wrap your head around being a part of a culture you never wanted to be a part of in the first place. Yeah. Really, you know, it's all sudden you're there. You're like, wait a minute. That wasn't what I had in mind. <laughs> yeah, I feel like all of us can agree to that. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Now for guys, there is an impact upon reproductive function. Mm-hmm. And that's really due to the the sequence of events that have to occur for two things to happen. One, for the penis to get erect, that's a bit of a challenge for a lot of men with spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. One, two, for ejaculation and that whole course of events, for that, for ejaculate to make it out of the seminal vesicles
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: through the penis and not into the bladder. That happens for lots and lots of men. That oh. The sequence of contractions just don't happen the way that they need to right that being said though because it's more men have spinal injuries there's a lot more research and there's a lot more methods to sort of augment their function and from a reproductive standpoint as well as a sexual performance standpoint make it so they can change the way they function and achieve the goals that they have in their life and in their relationships Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like each of us have our own set of challenges that we faced. Well, I mean, whether you have a spinal cord injury or not, everybody has their own adversity that they face. And I think with sex and stuff, it's often, like you said, for considered a taboo subject. I mean, I'm East Indian and in our culture, like you just don't talk about it. You don't do it till you're married. I mean, in my religion, which I'm we don't date either. You're not allowed to date. I mean, what it used to be before is you're just getting an arranged marriage, right? I mean, that's a whole subject on its own. <laughs> but yeah, there is a lot of taboo around it. And like people feel ashamed to ask the questions that they have or to bring up any concerns that they might have. And so I, that's why I think it is really important that we talk about these things and make them more normal. And tell people that there are resources out there to like
1: help them through what they're going through and bring this stuff into the light. Like it's a beautiful, amazing, life affirming thing, Mm -hmm. not a shameful, dirty, weird. Yeah. Part of who we are. Yeah. I mean,
0: the society needs to change. The
1: culture needs
0: to change around that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it is pervasive. I mean, yeah, some, some cultures, some ethnicities, Maybe more, more or less positive with regard to their approach to sexual health, but generally, most are closed mm-hmm. or certainly squeamish, taboo. And I think some of that is because they just don't know. Yeah, you know, unless you start seeking or searching or have somebody that's sex positive and already talks to you about these things, mm-hmm. you don't know other than by having a lot of fun and checking sure. it out. Sometimes that stuff isn't fun, when it, especially when it's not working the way you would like it to work.
0: Right. So, okay, let me ask you about, so you have your spinal cord injury, and you were how old? Sorry, 16? Yeah. Okay, so then you said you were single for a few years, and mm-hmm. then how did you go about the dating scene? What was your headspace like? And yeah, tell us about how you met
1: Paul. Yeah, so prior to meeting Paul, I didn't really see myself as part of the population that I was a part of. Mm -hmm. So, I didn't talk to anybody else about what it was like to date and mate after a spinal cord injury. I certainly didn't tell any of the young men that I dated. Like, I I didn't disclose anything about my bladder or bowel function because I thought, A, one, ew, gross. Mm -hmm. And B, I was very nervous that they would turn and, and run. And so I was kind of just going forward, kind of in the dark. Anyone that I really like or wanted to date, I never let it get very far. Like we would go on a date, but it would be the kind of date where we wouldn't end up at anybody's place afterwards. It was a few hours long and then I was home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly, the other thing that I felt... I felt very infantilized by the fact that I couldn't do things by myself. I wasn't independent when I was first injured. I needed somebody's help to catheterize. Mm -hmm. I needed somebody's help for everything, um, getting undressed, getting dressed again. So all of those things that would go along with experimenting and dating and sex. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the language to discuss it. I felt so uncomfortable and didn't disclose that. So I saw people, but it never really went very far because I didn't let it go very far. And so I was 19 and finished my first year of university. And I met Paul in traffic actually in the summer Mm -hmm. and did nothing with it. I had just been rejected quite badly by somebody that I really, really was sweet on. And I was really closed at that point to anything and everything related to dating related to sex all of that and so when he followed me home one evening (laughs) he gave me his business card and he said I found you know I saw you in traffic I thought you were attractive And I wonder if you'd like to go for coffee and I was like thanks I'll take your business card have a nice day and that was it (laughs) and then uh about a week later he kind of thought that maybe I thought he was playing some sort of mean joke and so he left a card and he left a rose at the front entrance of my apartment with just my first name because that was already all I gave him yeah Um, and so uh, the same day that he left that rose someone had broken into our building and shattered a huge huge window Right beside where he left the rose. And-, and my mom was staying with me at the time. Yeah. And like, this guy is a creep. And you better go to the cops. And I, I didn't. I, I just, like, mom, this is the big thing. So I kept the card. I kept the rose. And the, and the card was uh, a gesture of genuine interest and a gesture of apology if I have was somehow offended by him approaching me. Mm-hmm. So I, again, I did nothing with it. I left it for, it was three more months, Mm
0: -hmm. and then
1: we were both driving on another end of Edmonton all together, different to different things, and I was, yeah, he followed me again and got out of the car again, and he's like, hey, it's me, like, (laughs) you again, great, and uh, he again gave me his business card, and again, I didn't do anything with it, and he, at that point, obviously knew where I lived, Mm -hmm. we were very close by, so he on his lunch hour, ran by and taped a, a note to my window of my vehicle. And it was another pitch to, to say, okay, you know, there was this, this Prince Charming named Paul and this woman named Margaret, and they met and madly fell in love. <laughs> well, maybe they didn't. Maybe they went for coffee. Maybe they didn't hit it off. Maybe they decided to never meet again. Oh, what a travesty. You know, they wasted 0.07% of their life. So I did make a plan to meet him just for coffee to say, Thank you. This is very flattering, but please yeah. leave me alone. And we could not get our schedules together because I was a student during the day.
0: Yeah. And had
1: free time at during the day and studied at night. And he was working during the day and free in the evening. We couldn't do coffee. So we did end up meeting for supper. And that was kind of the beginning of it all. So That's awesome. I love the story. <laughs> and I think... So he's much older than I am. He's 14 years my senior. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was probably a positive thing for me, because he wasn't, you know, he'd been around, I don't know how else to say it. So he, he'd mm-hmm. he been with other people, he'd been with other women. He also wasn't afraid or weirded out by me, he could see I was a, a wheelchair user. Mm-hmm. Most of The people that I had dated prior to seeing Paul or meeting Paul, were people who knew me before I was injured. So I also think I carried some stigma of knowing that I wasn't the same physically functioning person that I was after I was injured yeah so was also maybe part of it so he just I don't know he made me feel he, I was nervous very nervous mm-hmm. but all of the things he asked me and when I told him him what was going on he didn't get weirded out by it mm-hmm. and kept on progressing and he also had a roommate who was a nurse at the time Okay. And he asked her some questions about what it might be likely that I had. He figured I had a spinal cord injury, mm-hmm. borrowed her textbooks, did a little bit of homework on his own. He had a little bit of information of his own prior to us really dating and getting together. So, yeah. That's awesome.
0: Mm-hmm. You guys are so cute. And you're still together, right?
1: We are. 26 years together and, what are we, 19 years this year married. Wow, that's awesome. Congratulations on that. Thank you. It's been a hard, hard fought win. Actually, we've had a lot of challenges Yeah, in our marriage because I had mentioned that we're 14 years difference between the two of us. Mm -hmm. I had always in my mind had a plan that I was going to have like four kids. And when we first met, we both kind of were still on the same page. He was in his thirties. Having a family was still on the table, but I was still in the process of litigating because my injury Mm -hmm. with my high school and so we didn't get married for seven years. It took 11 years from time of injury to resolution for my own litigation. Right. And so by the time that we did get married and did kind of, we're in that place where we thought, Hey, this is the time to have mm-hmm. kids. We started going in different directions with what we wanted. I was still the age of, I wanted to be a mother. I had a plan mm-hmm. to be a mother. He was starting to rapidly move away from that because he was 40 already by then Mm -hmm. and so that was a very very challenging period of time for both of us because we weren't going in the same direction at all the other thing that kind of had happened when we first met I again like I said I didn't know my own the own anatomy of my own pleasure Mm -hmm. and Paul was there with me all the way in terms of wanting to explore things and do things but I made a bit of a mistake I think in saying don't get so focused on my pleasure it's just taking away from the end result and after a little while it sort of kind of did go that way where I didn't speak up I didn't say what I needed or wanted I didn't know what I wanted right and he kind of said well okay I guess you don't need that then so I just won't focus on that right so while we had a really hot passionate get together in terms of the the first few years we were together and when we got married, things got real, right? In terms of yeah. kids, money, our career goals, where, we were, where I was going in my career, things were starting to change in his career. Yeah. We started to move apart in that sense. And so not just related to kids, but also life in general. We became distant and we didn't both work on fixing that for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I feel like we could have gone in a different direction and at this point not be together
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and we luckily I don't have a magic answer as to why
0: Mm
1: -hmm. we both turned towards each other I feel like we're in a new marriage together Mm -hmm. and I think turning 40 and being close to 40 was a huge impetus for me to start focusing on my own pleasure again and I had just really stopped living that part of my life for such a long time
0: I think think a lot of people do that, whether they have a spinal cord injury or not. But like you said, like you didn't have the language to voice your wants and your needs and I feel like I mean now I'm 38 and I'm able to like speak that but definitely in my early 20s as a teenager and stuff there's no way I would have been able to express what it is that I want and need I think that's just something that like it's just kind of society and how we're raised right yeah if you are raised in a religious household then you're likely not going to have that same language that you'll be able to express that
1: I think it's been fortunate too, because I think it could be couched in a beautiful religious context for those yeah. that are of any faith actually, but it isn't. So, so when we talked about being a young person, not being able to articulate last weekend was a, a birthday get together for some family members and I, and a, there was a 40th mm-hmm. and a 16th birthday. So one of them was my great niece who was turning 16. And so her aunt, mm-hmm. my and I, her great aunt, the two of us had some time with her. We were at a, a spa and uh, I, we gave her a vibrator. We had an entire discussion about like sex and pleasure and it being all about, you know, learning the, the best way for you to be a good lover and to, to have the best sexual experiences, to know your own body and to start figuring out what works, what doesn't work and mm-hmm. At first, she was a little bit weirded out, but I think she was totally enamored with it afterwards. She, it, was, it was great. So I wish that more women took care of women in that sense. Yeah.
0: You know, you said you first learned about, like, the women's body and stuff through Playboys. But now it's kind of more, you know, the internet is available to everybody. And there's so much out there that it's a lot of it's unrealistic.
1: People are viewing entertainment not real body yeah. real sexual response
0: yeah I think that's going to create a whole bunch of different issues <laughs> okay I wanted to go back to your education so you finished high school and then you went to university and do you want to just go into more detail about like what your what classes you took and the journey your education took you on
1: yeah my first degree was adopted recreation so within the phys ed, uh, faculty. And at the end of all of that, you know, my goal was to be a a rec therapist, but I found that really limiting. And I was also in the thick of the most passionate part of the beginning of our relationship. Mm -hmm. And I was curious, but like I said, didn't have the language to talk about sex. And so I was still curious and couldn't figure out what, what could I do that expands upon the education I already have and continue. And so I had one of the Profs within phys ed said, you know, you need to keep going. You need to keep on learning and, and do something. And he says, former dean of phys ed is now the acting dean of this new program. Hmm. It was a, a diploma and or a master's of science and health promotion studies. Okay. They got rid of the diploma because nobody saw the value in just getting a diploma, an after, after degree diploma. Mm-hmm. So, um, I continued and did the, the master's of science route. And my focus was sexual health for women with spinal cord injury.
0: Okay.
1: And yeah, so the other thing that was kind of formative is in my first year of my first degree, I met somebody by the name of Shana Mm Fastmail, and he is a a prof within the Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine, Mm -hmm. and at that time, I, I met him because I was taking a communications course. Okay. And he was just very friendly and... And we got to be very good buddies right away mm-hmm. after that class. He was very open. He started asking questions. Has anybody ever talked about sex sex and disability with you? And I remember that time being like, hey, that's a, that's, that's a pretty invasive question. <laughs> but it didn't take very long after that that I started mm-hmm. to become quite interested. I started to participate in some of the, the sexual health classes that he taught on a, a panel yeah Uh, individuals with lived experience yeah that for many many years that's awesome that was actually my first experience of talking
0: about sexuality was in his class Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it was I went to replace my friend because she got double booked and she's like please can you I was like no I can't (laughs) and she's like like, please No, and that was my first year being paralyzed. Like, no, I don't want to talk about this. And then she was just like, please, like, I have nobody else to ask. And, you know, one of my mottos has always been fake it till you make it. So that's Mm -hmm. what I did. (laughs) But yeah, after that, I, I really enjoyed it because it is something that we do need to talk about. And talking to OT students who are going to become occupational therapists, this is something that they need to be made aware of and have more information on. So I'm glad you were one of the first ones.
1: Yeah. And they're so keenly interested in learning and they're generally positive. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't nearly as scary as I had built it up in my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So it was a, a great place to to do that. And so then in my research, when I did my master's of science, Shanoff was one of my thesis supervisors. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I did some interviews with women with a lived experience. And we discussed their experience before and after a neurological disability, mm-hmm. or be spinal injury, muscular sclerosis, or any other number of different things that impact your neurologic functioning. Mm-hmm. To to talk about sexual health and, and reproductive health before and after, and what that looked like. So that was what my thesis was based on.
0: Awesome. And this is why you are so well-versed in it now. <laughs> let's talk about autonomic dysreflexia because a lot of people I mean yourself included when you have I think it's T4 and up if you have a spinal cord injury from there you can experience autonomic dysreflexia Nancy am I right about that
1: so autonomic dysreflexia is typically seen at the T6 injury level or higher So that's basically just a fancy way of saying there's some noxious stimuli or stimulus that the the brain no longer is able to interpret the way it did before. And you get a really quick rise in blood pressure that can be
0: dangerous. Okay, cool. Yeah. So Margaret, what is your experience with AD? Because I know I've talked to a few people who said that, you know, by orgasming, they induce AD and it's Mm -hmm. not worth it to them to almost stroke out and die to have an orgasm. So in the words of one of my friends, she has hung up her panties forever.
1: (laughs) You know what? I had what I thought was a D and it just turned out to be a sex, it's called a sex headache. And the only reason I knew it wasn't autonomic dysreflexia is because it, it came and went fairly quickly and I was able to sort of push through and continue the stimulation to the point of orgasm. So Lots of individuals that I know, any sexual stimulation causes this autonomic dysreflexia and it doesn't go away until they absolutely stop all activity that is uh, genitally based and Mm -hmm. certain orgasm bringing upon the, the greatest response that is not good at all. And I know some people that because genital stimulation brings up autonomic dysreflexia for them they find other very very highly pleasurable activities and body parts but for me I don't tend to have autonomic dysreflexia unless I've already got like a UTI brewing mm-hmm. and then I will get autonomic dysreflexia during sex but I haven't experienced that for probably three or four years and I used to experience autonomic dysreflexia generally more frequently earlier on in my injury I don't tend to get an autonomic dysreflexia response hardly ever anymore yeah not going good once a year kind of thing okay good because I used to get it you know the pounding headache and all of that and it wouldn't go away if I had a UTI or if I had a full bladder or you know bowel was impacted with Constipated stool or something like that. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, let's go back to you said that people would focus on other parts of their bodies other than genital stimulation. So, Mm -hmm. kind of like, what does that look like?
1: Generally, where people often begin sort of the rediscovery of of their sort of pleasure maps, and the advice given, and certainly this has sort of been similar for me, is Mm -hmm. to start where your sensation goes from quote unquote normal to different okay for me that's right around chest level uh breasts and nipples Mm -hmm. become highly are very highly sensitive the inside of my elbows are very highly sensitive and sort of the dermal planes on the outside of my arms are not so much but Mm -hmm. on the inside and towards where that changes to becoming more numb I uh, changes and is very much so a sensitive spot interesting one of my good friends And someone I respect quite a lot, uh, I won't name them, a guy with a very, very high level injury, Mm -hmm. his ears, like if they could ejaculate, his ears would probably ejaculate. Really? Yeah, like he's very much an ear man. (laughs) Another colleague of mine who is no longer alive, same thing, ears were all where his sexual responsiveness, sort of the seat of his sexual response was.
0: That's so interesting. Do you think it's like an adaptation as a human? That like okay something disrupted my central nervous system. I can't feel my genital yeah. genitals anymore, but now like my neck is sensitive or my ears are sensitive. Or well, how
1: can I continue to relate at a high level with someone else or even with myself? Right, like mm-hmm. if a person is, it certainly becomes a, a different activity the more highly physically barriered you are. But to find parts of your body that you find extremely pleasurable. Mm-hmm such a life-affirming thing it's such a life-affirming adventure to try and always have
0: yeah okay i'm still curious about this ad say like you're having sex or whatever and you are experiencing ad i don't have ad so i can't relate to it but like generally from people that i've talked to they kind of know their symptoms and they know what's going to happen first and then what to do how did you figure this out how did you navigate that
1: well, for me, it was a headache as well as a uh, feeling of anxiety related to higher blood pressure. Okay. And some of that was taught to me when I was in rehab. Now, for me, my experience is quite different because 30 years ago, I spent eight months mm-hmm. in rehab, whereas people quads and paras spend weeks months in rehab now and they may may not get the information they may or may not be in a mental place to even hear and integrate the learning either Mm -hmm. so I had more than one cycle of SCI education that I I got to go through to learn and hear and integrate the learning and to experience it while I was actually in hospital and so the advice i had been given early on was stop doing that really take away the stimulus, the noxious stimuli causing this flight or fight response. So it's your sympathetic nervous system is is reacting and your body just doesn't have the ability to send the signal to say, okay, time to relax. Mm-hmm. The saber tiger is not after you. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a feeling out to what degree they can back off of a particular activity mm-hmm. and either ramp up again or if it just stays sustained that negative response whether it be a high blood pressure for most it's yeah it's it's a risk of having a stroke
0: yeah i mean and that's scary right to think that you could be having sex and then stroke out Mm -hmm. and i think it's important that we talk about these things because there's so many people who are getting injured i mean almost daily if we look at the stats Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these people are young. And so obviously this is going to be a part of your thought process of when you're post SCI of you know, can I have sex? What is it gonna look like if I do? Do if I and I get AD, what's gonna happen? And I mean, I'm in, I'm very interested by all of this stuff. So I'm sure other people
1: And again, I'm not a medical doctor, <laughs> but if you tend to have autonomic dysreflexia easily. I would be aware, not wary, but aware of it mm-hmm. and pay attention to it. Mm-hmm. And if a person can and find can find the language, have that discussion with their partner about it. Yeah, yeah, just try to adapt what you're doing and do different things if it turns out that genital stimulation causes you autonomic dysreflexia, and know that it may not always. Right. Yeah, I mean, there's no rhyme or
0: reason to really any of this. <laughs> it is just kind of could happen this time, might not happen next time.
1: And sort of the adaptation that happened for me, where I realized it was a sex headache, I had I just plugged it into Google, mm-hmm. and one of the first things that they said was try taking an Advil before you have sex or are going kind to of masturbate. I just was like, well, how easy is that? Okay, yeah, and and that kind of set me on my path and then i just found that i didn't need it after a while so there was a bit of an adaptive response to the stimulus that made it such that it over time relaxed or reduced and to the point of not having anything
0: yeah that's really cool so as far as libido goes and sex drive i know we touched on it a little bit you know has this been studied like is there post spinal cord injury? Do people lose their sex drive? I mean, I was asked by a homeopathic doctor after I was paralyzed, but I really wasn't talked to about it while I was at the rehab hospital or anywhere. Like nobody really talked to me about it.
1: Yeah. So yes, the research that I'm aware of and that I've read does show that for women and for men generally, that uh, libido does decrease. Some of that related to an expectation that your sexual responsiveness will be the same as it was before injury or before your condition changed. Mm -hmm. I am hopeful that, and I'm seeing that there's less of a focus on reproduction and function like an able-bodied person Mm -hmm. and more focus on pleasure and that as we see more focus on pleasure and heightened states of pleasure, that there is more libido, an increase in people's libido and an openness to pleasure and mm-hmm. sex and sexual activity, not because there's less pressure, but because there's an awakening or an understanding that sex, sexuality, the way we interact with people is, is less about penis in the vagina, mm-hmm. bang, 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 orgasm than it is about the relating to yourself and relating to another person. Yeah. But definitely a lower libido is experienced after injury as opposed to before injury. Mm-hmm. I would be curious to see now that we have got people that are living 40, 50, 60 years post-injury, mm-hmm. I would like to see if people's libidos change over time as their every day and the balance of their lives has been lived as a person with injury mm-hmm. as opposed to yeah, my libido's changed four or five or 10 years after injury. I, I I'm to know what that's like, what the trajectory of that is like over time.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious to know that too. And I do like what you said. Like we've had a, num- a number of conversations about des- disability and sexuality. And I really love that you talk so much about pleasure and intimacy because that can be translated into like every part of our life. Yeah. And I feel like if you are living for pleasure and intimacy in everything you do, you're going to experience it more in every facet, including the sexual part of your life.
1: Yeah, it's a sort of erotic approach to living, really. And people have sort of taken the word erotic and made it sexual. And it's not, it's really about your passion for living and, and aliveness in the way you approach everything that you do. And so it's, it's both fortunate and un- and unfortunate that sex has been so attached to it and often attached to it in a shameful way. Mm-hmm. I find that unfortunate.
0: Yeah, for sure. But I feel like having these kind of conversations and really talking to people openly about what they find pleasurable. I mean, it doesn't all have to be sexual. And I kind of want you to talk about that a little bit about the pleasure and intimacy in life.
1: Yeah. And I think that maybe some of that has come from some of the darkest and most difficult periods in my marriage where I had to find bright spots. And I think also along with what was going on in my marriage, I had also had some serious health setbacks. They were points at which I had to again grasp for easy wins. Mm -hmm. I had to again grasp for little bits of light in the future and finding pleasure in everyday moments. For example, I find it sort of funny that I love to shave my legs. I love it. I love the sort of in the moment erotic pleasure I get from it. I do it for me only. I don't even think my husband even knows when I've shaved my legs. (laughs) I know I love the activity Mm -hmm. and it brings me a a source of joy. One time uh, I met with some of your male clients and we were talking about This still image, this comes up in my mind all the time. It was a rainy, crappy day. We were in California when this happened. And it had been raining a lot for weeks and weeks on end. And I was driving along and saw these two wiener dogs, two Dachshunds, pacing, and they were running at full tilt after a duck that was flying low level. Mm -hmm. That, that is, that is the... The joie de vivre. That is the essence of erotic living. Like they're just going full bore, full tilt. They're never catching that duck. (laughs) They believe, they have the the audacity, the audacious belief in uh, the possibility that they might. Mm -hmm. And they're living, uh, living and breathing breathing and eating that they might catch that duck. (laughs) I don't know if those are good examples or not, but. Even the, the small rituals that we have for ourselves, I think, are ways of keeping the erotic alive. Mm-hmm. Someone loves the morning coffee. You know, right now I'm looking out of a picture window and the colors are amazing. And I, I can sit and watch and look at the, the beauty of the colors of fall here mm-hmm. and just take it in. Mm-hmm. And it sounds weird, but we don't do enough of that.
0: No, we don't do enough of that. And I I absolutely love that. I feel like this is a great way to end this episode, to give all of our listeners a little bit of homework to find what you enjoy pleasurable in your life. Is it that morning cup of coffee? Is it that monthly pedicure that you get? Is it you're getting your hair done? Whatever it is, find that pleasure in it and express it and enjoy it. Because you're right, we don't do that enough. And we live in this world of hustle and bustle. And if anything that 2020 has taught us is to slow down, mm-hmm. enjoy what we have, because tomorrow is definitely not guaranteed.
1: And to stop telling ourselves that we don't have time or that it's frivolous, that focusing on pleasurable things is frivolous. Yeah. It's not. It, it is important. I agree. It really is. And Margaret, like we have so much more to talk
0: about. We have notes here. and mm-hmm. We we go through two thirds of the notes, which is pretty good. <laughs> I know. And the last third is the really fun part. That's so. the juicy part. That's why I wanted to save it for the next episode, because otherwise this episode is going to be two hours long. But yeah, as a teaser for the next episode with Margaret, it might not be the next ex- episode that we air, But our next episode with margaret we were going to be talking about the nitty-gritty details of pleasure so positioning oral sex props toys using lube blood flow incontinence all of this stuff we're going to dive deep into in one of our next episodes so please stay tuned for that and if anybody has any questions for margaret we do have an anonymous form on our website and on our instagram page Uh, Our website is www.reyu.ca and you can uh, ask any questions in there. Margaret, thank you so much for your time and for your information and for your willingness to share your story and your struggles and your triumphs.
1: Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's always fun to do a mind dump of the the things that go on inside my head and see how they sound on the outside.
0: (laughs) That's awesome, yeah. Thank you so much, Margaret, and thank you everyone for listening. Again, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to podcasts because that helps us grow our audience and reach more people with our information. And stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks.